Hello, Ani. Welcome. We've made it to episode three. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Communities of Wealth. I am your host, as always, Shanna Pelche. And I'm sitting here with Thea, Queen. Hi, Thea. And we have somebody (laughs) new at the table with us. Today, we'll be talking with a couple of youth advisors me included. You're included. So I'll be doing some facilitation, but also offering my thoughts. But I usually chime in anyway, so mm-hmm. yeah. what's new? Sam, why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners? Good morning. Um, my name is Sam Makwa Klutstra. My Anishinaabe name is which means the dreaming or envisioning bear. I'm uh, I'm from a small community called Matogamy First Nation. It's uh, about 200 people, and I'm related to them all. Shania mm-hmm. Twain's briefly from there. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> iconic. It honestly did. Is it iconic. really put you on the map? Well, I mean, she built us a park. Yeah, and like, then we like we, a kids park, like a kids park, a children's park, and then we turned it into a community garden. Nice. Yeah, because we destroyed that park. <laughs> yeah, I'm already picturing the park in Wiki. Like yeah. swings are broke. Like one swing's like hanging broken or something. It got its use. Um, but yeah, Metogamy is a it's a special community that's close to my heart. Not just because it's filled with family. It's also just like a really beautiful place that I uh, I love to enjoy, and some of my best memories are there. But right now, I, I'm living in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, Boateng. I'm uh, just living with my family during the pandemic, working from home. Uh, spending time with them, uh, which is something that I, I haven't been able to do as much because we've been working so intensely these past, like, since, you know, colonization. Mm-hmm. You're just going <laughs> to drop the C word like this early in the podcast. <laughs> it's going to keep coming yeah. up. <laughs> so it's nice to have a little bit of rest and it's nice to be able to to slow down a bit and just enjoy, you know, spending time with my family, but also being able to to take some time and enjoy just, you know, a day, just to have a day for myself every once in a while and to spend it how I like. So I I do appreciate the peace that I get from living uh, over here. It's very different than where I was coming from, which is Toronto, because Toronto is just, it's uh, chaos. It's constant chaos. It's somewhat organized chaos, but for the most part, it's it's pretty bad. People are just hustling like 24-7 there. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so ingrained in the society that to not hustle is to almost offend those kind of folks or be lazy. Yeah, yeah, you're like, how dare you not be killing yourself? Yeah, at your job, like if you're not on the brink of death, then you're not working hard enough. Like, well, yeah, are we going to get into workers' rights? <laughs> <laughs> C word, <laughs> colonization, <laughs> workers' rights. Yeah. So where did your passion for like youth, indigenous youth, like leadership kind of start? And it was OIP like one of the first, likely not the first sort of like role that you've had in terms of like pursuing like youth leadership stuff or just being a youth leader yourself? OIP actually came in probably closer to the start, but it definitely was not the start for whatever this journey is that I'm on. Um, it actually started in high school. I, I was part of a, a really cool group of youth at Tim and Time Vocational School, Shania Twain High. Um, and we started the Aboriginal Youth Advisory Circle at THNVS, where we just talked about issues that were affecting Indigenous students in our school. And it was something that grew a little bit bigger than we had anticipated and got a little bit more intention f- 
from the administration of the school, but also from the district school board and the ministry at the time, which it was under a liberal government. Uh, they actually seemed to, to care what we were saying. So it was a unique experience where on one hand, I didn't realize how tokenized we were absolutely being mm. and how much free labor we were doing because we were just so young. But on the other, it was an opportunity where I was able to develop a lot of the skills that I have now today, a lot of public speaking skills, a lot of just being able to have effective communication or conversation or get across the point that I'm trying to make. And from there, I started working on this cool research project with one of my other like co-advisory council members. And the research was about transitions that Indigenous youth like myself experience when we're moving from our communities to urban centers like Timmins. And the research that we ended up pulling was that obviously young people want to succeed. Young Indigenous people didn't move eight hours away from their home community to go to high school because they don't want to be there. Like they're there because they want to be and because they're prepared to be as successful as they potentially can be and to reach their full potential as, as youth, as young people, as, as people in general. And so when we started uh, to get noticed for the work that we were doing, we were almost like shipped around the province to give talks about, you know, our research and about ours, our experience as, you know, Indigenous people who grew up experiencing this kind of transition. And for a lot of people, it's unheard of for somebody to travel eight hours to go to high school or for somebody to even travel an hour and a half on a bus to go to high school, to leave the, their community and go to an entirely different city. But in the North, living with just, different people. Yeah. Boarding homes, especially. And in the North, that's just, that's the, the norm for a lot of young people. It's just, you have to leave your family and you have to go to a school uh, or you hope to go to a school that is going to give you the opportunities you need to succeed. And generally your community supports you, but they can only do so much too. So a, a lot of the responsibility is kind of enforced or imposed upon a young person who's, you know, 13, 14. And they're coming to a major, well, in the North, the north a major city where they're expected to, to gain all of these skills independently. I mean, moving from grade eight to high school, even within like your own district is a culture shock and stressful, let alone if you're living with new people. So you're doing this research, you're going around the province, you're becoming sort of, you're finding your voice in this way. And what, when did you start to get approached by OIP or did you approach them first? <laughs> I, I actually approached OIP. I, I'd been doing this stuff. I had been, you know, excited about the work I was doing, but I was feeling kind of tokenized by the government. I was feeling tokenized by my school at the time. And I was ready to stop doing that kind of stuff. And I was like maybe 16 or 17 at the time. Um, and I just knew that I needed to get out of Timmins. I needed to get out of Northern Ontario if I wanted to continue to, to create positive change or to gain the skills that I even needed to, to do what I wanted to do uh, and the, to make the change I wanted to see. So I moved away to Toronto. I'd lived there. I'd worked in nonprofits. I had been you know, creating community, um, engaging with community, doing my best to to support myself and prepare myself for, you know, like community building work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of heavy lifting, just even mentally. So you have to be prepared to, to do that. And I thought that I was ready. And I went back to my community and I was like, hey, so I, I've been in the city. I've been gone for a while. I have skills. I want to do stuff. I want to create some change. Uh, and my community was receptive. But doing that work is hard. 
thankfully I did have support though. And that support came in the support or in the form of, you know, OIPs, financial support, but also the the community and the connections that came from that. I had uh, applied to the granting process to do a really cool idea. I wanted to bring a group of youth from metogamy to a different community. I wanted us to have like a cross-cultural exchange mm. so that we could, you know, speak and share and talk with just youth who might be having similar experiences, but maybe in a different location or, uh, you know, their reality is just so different than ours. So I was starting to like think about what would this look like? Who would we go and see? What would we even talk about? What would we ask? Uh, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> Oip. Oip is going to pay for this. <laughs> Thank you, Thea. <laughs> it's not me. It's not my money. <laughs> no? <laughs> uh, I wish. <laughs> um, so I did that. I, I managed to organize this all. A group of, I think, seven or eight of us went. We went to Aquasosny. And we got to sit with some youth in Aquasosny. Yeah. Uh, those wow those Haudenosaunee youth man yeah <laughs> very different and along the way it was kind of interesting how this happened because I I had no experience or I had no knowledge of our history between Metogamy and Aquasosni I didn't know that we even had a prior connection or anything like that how did you pick that community to begin with I, I was in a school program at Ryerson and one of the youth there uh we were chatting about this idea of doing kind of cross-cultural communication or cross-cultural learning and she suggested Aquasosni because that was her community and I thought that that was an excellent choice because at the time I was really interested, and I still am, I was really interested in the idea of the intersection of borders, colonial borders, and how those affect us as Indigenous people um, because they're completely irrelevant to our way of life. <laughs> um, and even living here in the Sioux, we have the American border that runs right through Anishinaabe territory. Uh, this isn't something I thought about in metogamy because in metogamy, we're in the middle of you know, nowhere. <laughs> there's no borders around us. There's no colonial interference in the same sense. There's on reserve and off reserve for sure. But in a community like Aquasasani, you have the, the American border, the Canadian border. And then within that, you have the Quebec border, the Ontario border, and the New York border. Wow, <laughs> like- yeah. So these kids, like these youth were, were going across border checks to get home and then a, across again to go to school or to go to Walmart or to just go out into the town. Wow. Yeah. So to even get out of their community, they had to interact with like this oppressive colonial force that's trying to police where they can and can't go. It was interesting. And we did learn a lot. But I think what we took away from it the most was just this, this energy, this invigorating energy of like, you know, we're just still going to be as best as we can. Like the young people there in Aquasasani were just, they were committed to being the best that they can, regardless of the, the barriers, the actual physical barriers that were in their way. Uh, and some of the stories they shared, I won't repeat them, but they were really funny. <laughs> just with messing with the border patrol. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to narc on it. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit it out. <laughs> so when you were like, you had this idea and you're thinking, because this, all this costs money, you're like traveling feeling tokenized because I'm guessing the school board probably wasn't paying you what your like knowledge was worth to go and do all of these speeches. Yeah. And so like, what was it like to either find OIP? How did you hear about it? And to actually have been like, one thing we talked about it in our first episode was like the having, having, being able to say yes to young people, like to the indigenous young people, about the ideas that they have and the stuff that they dream up and want to do, like, how did it feel to just get a yes for an idea that you had? 
It felt really good. Yeah. Uh, like taking that chance definitely uh, positively impacted me as an individual, but I also saw the changes that even that one trip had in the other youth that were with me. Like for one of the youth, it was their first time outside of Ontario. Like they were going to Montreal afterwards for the first time. So exciting. Yeah. Like the, the idea that this opened up an entire avenue of just even traveling or getting to know another community's experience for this one person or for everybody in that group was was so important for me. And we also had a, a crazy opportunity that Gabby had set up. Of course, it was Gabby. Queen. Yeah. Where while we were going to Aquasasini, we we made a pit stop in Ottawa. And Gabby had actually organized a tour of Parliament for us. And we got to sit down with one of the senators in Parliament um, and just spend the day getting a tour of, you know, the, the House of Commons and then also of Ottawa in general. And I think it was just so important for, for people that were with me from my community to see that, you know, these spaces, they might seem intimidating, but at the end of the day, it's just a building filled with people. And each of us is capable of changing the minds of those people that are in that building. Uh, there's many different ways that we can do that. But just understanding that, you know, Canada or the government is not just this <laughs> huge beast of a machine that is incomprehensibly big that uh, anything we try to do to, to create change is just, you know, for not. But instead that, you know, it's entirely possible for us or for one individual to, to go into these places and, and to just be their true self and for that to have an impact on that place. I'm not saying that we changed hearts and minds on this trip in Parliament, but I, I absolutely, maybe, but I absolutely think that it, we, we opened up an avenue of change that I don't think existed for a lot of young people who were on that trip with us. Well, their mindset as well, right? Of being like, oh, wait, it's not this big monster. Actually, I could probably take that monster on, you know? <laughs> and not having that realization that it's like, it's not this gigantic machine that you have no power over. It's like 500 people. Yeah. Like yeah. it's literally a block. It's a city block of, of folks that are making decisions that aren't theirs to make. Um, and that can feel like it's it's so out of our control and out of our power, but... I mean, our power isn't saying no. So at the end of the day, it's up to us as Indigenous people whether or not we want to even interact with that institution in that way. And they should be so lucky if you're willing to engage. Like yeah. They need you and your voice more than we need them because you're just, you're going to screw us over regardless. So <laughs> we don't need to depend on you. But if you want to make change and be better people and be a better government or whatever, that you need us and our voices. Yeah. So after the trip, how did you go from being like an, a successful applicant to being involved as a youth advisor? I, so I did that first grant. And then I actually had a second grant that I applied for the next year. And I had moved back to Toronto after doing that work in my community. Uh, and while I was there, I, I got involved with Inegbi Youth Agency. And I had been a youth in the Inegbi program since I was a, a youth at the Native Canadian Center when I first moved to Toronto. So I was like 17, 18, getting involved with that youth program. And then eventually worked myself up to being on the, the board of directors for, for them. It's the first Indigenous youth agency like that that exists, as far as I know, in Canada, where it's entirely uh, youth-led. The governance is entirely based on youth consent and youth voice to the point where the, the youth council for Inegbi can dissolve our board of directors 
whenever they feel that we're not representing them in the way that is appropriate. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had a grant and I, I wanted to do skills building for some of the youth in this program with me and for just youth in Toronto in general. So I, I put on a series of workshops for resumes, skilled, skills building, and then I did headshots for them. Yeah. So important, actually. I don't think people realize how important it is to, in this, you know, capitalist dystopia to look presentable or to look whatever the idea of presentable is for whoever is going to be reading your application or mm. your job. And it, that conversation is sometimes hard to have with, with people who are very comfortable um, or they don't necessarily know that kind of world. So I think it's an important thing to just be able to take some people and say, well, I'm not trying to say that the way that you're living your life is incompatible with, you know, having this kind of job or whatever. But there are ways to make it easier to gain that kind of position or whatever. So just having frank conversations like that. Uh, I also really appreciated that I was able to directly give some support in the form of funds to these youth. So I was able to actually say, well, here's some money. Go and get some like clothes or pay a phone bill or what's going to help you be employed. Things like that. So being able to remove barriers. And that second grant was pretty great too. I, I really enjoyed that. It was very different than the first one. Um, but that's, I kind of like that about OIP though. Like they can be anything. The, <laughs> the grants can be like literally a community garden to like a mural to like a policy document or something crazy. Like a running program. Yeah, you right? can do a running program. There's a lot of different things that you can do. Uh, it's, it's so adaptable. And I think you guys have done just such a great job of making it so that it's accessible, but it's also not too intimidating. Yeah, like in your experience applying for other types of funds, like did you ever look at other types of funding and just even get to the application and be like, I can't apply for this or what is this even? What, are they, what do they want from me? Versus guess, like when you look at OIPs and you're like, wow, this is straightforward. Like I can print this off and write it in pencil if I wanted to. I get to the webpage and then I just close it because I'm like, no, this is clearly not made to be accessible to me or to, to folks like me. Like some of the, the expectations, not even just on reporting, but just on the application itself are ridiculous. Like it's like applying for a job, but, you know, even more work, like even harder because you actually have to plan out financially the entire length of whatever it is you're trying to do and then summarize that all up into like a one or two page document. Um, so for me, I, I end up just not interacting with a lot of different fundings because I, I honestly don't know who they're for. I don't know. Even if youth is in the name. Even if indigenous youth (laughs) is in the name, (laughs) I will look at it and be like, this is not for me. I don't have any way of applying for this and being successful. I don't know who this is for. Like there are so many groups of indigenous youth who are doing things that are awesome. Grassroots groups, just informal collectives of people who aren't, you know, organized formally or whatever that are ineligible to receive a lot of funding because of the way that they are organized. Uh, and it's a shame because they're doing a lot of that hard work, the grassroots work that larger organizations or nonprofits, just they're not nimble enough to do, or they don't have the interest in doing it because it doesn't look good to their funders or uh, they don't want to deal with controversy or stuff like that. So to put that kind of authority, that agency back into to use hands through funds is something that OIP is, is really, really good at. 
because it's taking away all of that bloat, all of that bureaucracy and just saying, you know, we're going to take a chance on you. We believe in what you're trying to do. Even if it doesn't work out, we're still going to work with you because we want to see you grow and we want to see you build your skills. And we want to see you, you know, eventually do something like me and then become a part of the Oit family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go from advisor to, or go from grantee to advisor. And what was that like specifically like? Because I know that the onboarding process to even being a youth advisor, like we don't fill out 20 pages or like write down our story. Like it's a Google Doc. (laughs) You like, how did you get involved as a youth advisor? Do you remember the story of like how you came from a grantee to an advisor? I'm asking because I don't remember. I think you (laughs) asked me. I probably did. Yeah, I think it was either you or Gabby, but I think it was you. Uh, and then I was like, yeah, that's just like a natural fit for me to go from being a successful grantee twice over to a youth advisor. And it's also something that I, I'm very interested in doing. Uh, I mean, I don't really like the industry of philanthropy just because it's like based on the idea that <laughs> uh, the transfer of funds is like somehow a gift or a favor that's being done instead of just, you know, restitution and reparations. Mm-hmm. But I do like this part of philanthropy with you guys. <laughs> the shit disturbers. Yeah, I don't even know if I would. I would consider it philanthropy, but it's like its own like sect, you know? It's like anarchist philanthropy. We, we can cut that out. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's like beep philanthropy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think uh, part of what makes this OIP feel so different than other traditional like philanthropic like endeavors is a sort of this youth advisor panel or committee, like youth advisorship that we have guiding all of the OIP decisions, the crafting of the values, the picking of the youth uh, grantees, building relationships with youth that weren't successful so that they can be successful the next year. Like how many organizations will actually continue or like pursue relationships harder even with those who weren't successful because we know like they can be the next year. It's just maybe now is not the right time or, oh, we're going to show you how to write your budget. Not, oh, like they didn't do this right. So they don't get it or incomplete app. Like there's no such thing for us. It's a follow-up. It's guidance. It's how can we help you? Well, you're a past grantee now acting as a youth advisor. And that happens actually quite a bit, you know, because you've gone through the process of applying. So like you have this knowledge of, of what that is like. And now you get to see like the inside piece I'm going to put your pants on. I'm going to put your pants on. I'm going to put your pants on. Host pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, to talk to you about your experience now, because like th- th- this is a weird kind of dynamic at this point, because we're working on this podcast together. But you're also a youth advisor and you're also a past grantee. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to kind of pose some of the same questions to you of like, what has that been like for you being introduced to OIP and, and how has that experience been? It was wild. I was like just some res kid going to U of T, like feeling like a fish out of water, trying to survive (laughs) and find like community amongst like a sea of people down there. And I had become close with Lindsay Dupree, who was the Indigenous Education Liaison at U of T. And she's like super cool. And I would often just go and like chill with her and chat and like just like start to build relationships there and like little seek refuge and (laughs) and what was pretty intense institution not always the greatest with working with indigenous students and so like in seeking and creating like our own pockets of resistance as students I was able to find another pocket of resistance that existed within the world of philanthropy 
And so Lindsay had there, I guess there was an opening for a youth advisor on this committee and she had been a youth advisor here for a couple of years, I guess. So Yous had really good relationships and and she had started building relationships with me and had said, hey, would you like to be involved in the Ontario Indigenous Youth Partnership Project? I think you'd be a good fit. And I like read up on the website and I was like, sure, I don't really know what philanthropy is or giving money. I've never really had this kind of capacity before. And I came to their onboarding meeting and I met everybody and it was like just from the start, like even just the food and, and like the laughs and everything, it just felt so like, res <laughs> and like chill and the relationships were like authentic from the beginning not like forced and awkward it was just like ever it was just nice to see like community kind of unfolding in front of me and I just remember seeing Gabby for the first time like she's just always like snatched like just I was like what a queen I want to be her <laughs> uh, someone called her indigenous Beyonce yeah like oh, I look up to her so much. she's so cool and I, right away, I was like, this is a fierce choir right there. <laughs> and so just to like have like these role models around me, I felt very supported and um, excited to step into this world and to learn. And it was made it very approachable to, be, to onboard as somebody brand new and to make these relationships. So yeah, that's my story, which is like, that's what I mean. There's no like, I didn't like Google like youth advisor opportunities or anything. I was approached because of, my relationships and the good relations that I was starting to create at U of T to become a youth advisor because I think like there's just the sense and now being on the youth advisor for a couple of years now, like we're very protective over our circle and the way we do things and we're protective over people's feelings and we want to make sure everyone feels good and like this work is nourishing. And so when we welcome folks into our circle, you want to make sure that they're going to be a good fit and they're not going to like cause rifts in the family. Yeah, we don't. But there's enough. We're shit disturbers in other ways, but we don't need them in our immediate circle. Yeah, we don't have to have it internally. Yeah, but I, I just wanted to kind of speak to a little bit of that process because we've been asked a bunch of times, like, well, how do you do it? Like, how do you get youth advisors? And I'm like, there's not. I don't have like a like a to like a list of how I do it or like a document to show you. Like everything is very intuitively done. So it was like working with you for two years, Sam, on the grants. I was like this guy's awesome. Like, I think he's, he's gone through this, all this, these things. And like, that's kind of how we're doing it. It's like, this person has this interest and they want to be part of this. And then you just go ahead and ask, or you were working through our current youth advisors, you know, when some of them uh, graduate or phase out of their, you know, youth role and they're no longer feeling like their, their voice is, is of like a youth perspective. Um, we we talk to them about who they can bring in and that's kind of how it goes. So it's like, I find it really interesting when I'm like filling out a grant application or I'm doing something like that and they ask, well, how do you do it? I'm like, well, I don't, we, I don't know. I, we, we just do. <laughs> and like, sometimes we get approached as well. Hopefully we'll get Claudia Skunk on here um, to speak to her experience, but she literally reached out of, out of nowhere. And I had happened to fly into Toronto and took her for lunch and I was like, you're super rad. You want to you want to be part of this? And she's like, yes. <laughs> Claudia is great. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is this is awesome. But it was also just to go to show like we have um, we do have a reputation, and people are finding us, and they are wanting to be involved in in what we're doing. I mean, I think what makes this so successful is just that at the center of it is relationships, 
Uh, it's about building connections between each other. And, you know, part of the reason why I don't like philanthropy is that it's often, it's very cold. For an industry that's all about giving, it's a very cold industry and very impersonal. Uh, often you don't even meet the people who are giving you money. And, you know, they're not interested in anything other than the reporting that you're going to be doing with their money. So to, to step into a space like WIPE and to not just be, you know, greeted with a bureaucrat or something, but actually to, to see friends and family, it completely changes the tone of what we're doing. It completely changes the experience that I have when I'm interacting with OIP or when I'm interacting with our grantees or with the other youth advisors, because I'm not just seeing dollar signs moving on pages or anything like that. I'm actually, I'm seeing other people and I'm directly seeing the impact that our funds are having on those individuals and also on the communities that they're serving. Maybe I can pose a different question to you. How do you feel, you've obviously been on different kind of advisory roles. How do you feel like that has differed between, you know, being an advisor here versus being an advisor for other organizations? I definitely feel as if I have more agency. Uh, I have a lot more independence as an advisor in my choices, but I also, I understand that, you know, the way that we choose grantees is through conversation with each other. We're constantly checking in with each other as youth advisors to talk about what are the benefits uh, or the impacts that, you know, this one project is going to have. And sometimes it's not about the the biggest benefit or the widest impact. It it could be about uh, what's the potential that we see in this young person or, or in their project that they're working on or in the community that they're building. And that's just not really something that happens on other advisories that I'm participating in. Like that's not something that's, uh, even in the scope of a lot of the work that other advisory councils are doing, they're they're usually very specific in the way that they're set up um, to kind of corral you to a certain direction. Whereas with OIP, I feel like I I'm not fenced in with my decision making, but I am expected to be responsible with how I make decisions and to make sure that I'm doing it with you know the consent of the other youth advisors that are on the the group with me. The idea that, you know, we're siloed is for me like non-existent and I feel like, yes, my opinion is absolutely valued and integral to the decision-making process, but so is everybody else's. And it's very refreshing to be in a space where we can just all share what we're thinking. Mm. And how how do you feel about like when, because you're touching on a few things that I think are important for us to share. And that's like the fact that we're all very much relationship based. And I know that from a philanthropist or for, from like the sector sort of piece of like granting the relationships that we hold with ourselves and with our grantees could in some ways be frowned upon, right? Being like, well, how dare you review a grant from a person that you know? So what are your sort of thoughts around that? And I'd like to hear what you have to say too, Shannon, about that. Cause you know, it's, it's an important process of how we do things. Well, I mean, when it comes to reviewing, we are given the choice. So when you're like looking at all of the grants and you see like, oh, this name, like I know this person or, oh, that's my community. Like they, like Thea, like the the whole OIP, we kind of like just have this understanding where like if you feel like you're too close to this, that you really can't give an objective like review, which is also like, I'm using that word loosely, like, it's very colonial. It's very researchy. It's almost promoted that you be removed from the process as if it makes it more fair. <laughs> but we all know like objectivity 
means really nothing. You're still going to have bias. And, you know, there have been instances where we have like known somebody or known a fact about like somebody on the grant that, you know, this person doesn't have a good reputation in the community and things like that. So which just warrants further conversations with that that group. Like it, it just means like a few other stepping stones to reach out and like really get to like, was this actually a youth who wrote this? Or like, let's see, let's do some investigation. But it's more just, it's up to us as the young people to kind of decide, okay, like I have stepped away from reviewing, like, of course, when it was my own application. <laughs> but also somebody applied for my community, but I didn't, like, I don't know them personally. They're just like this young person who's from Wiki. And I read the app and I was like, give it to her. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't feel the need to like remove myself because I'm also like passionate and excited to see young people from my community apply. So I also felt like excited to give a yes. I don't know if that's like, that's probably problematic maybe in the sector, but I felt like. Well, it could be, but also I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because exactly. like, the thing is, is like, like, I want to hear about what people are advocating for. You know, and like that's an important piece to how we operate and why that is so much better. Because when you put in a grant to an organization that is being reviewed by a committee, this this anonymous committee, they have no idea who you are, what you're trying to accomplish. And I don't care like how well you wrote it. They don't get it. Especially if they're not from communities or if they're they're non-Indigenous and they don't understand what it is that we're trying to sort of, you know, uh, share with them and try to explain, well, this is what this, this means. And so I think that's a key piece because you get to advocate for people. And especially when we do have like conflicts, you know, I think it's important to say like, Hey, I understand this about this person. Yes. I'm going to remove myself, but I'm going to say this thing before you guys go into your conversation. And then, then you leave. And then the decision gets made and the conversation happens. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, it's definitely a reality that isn't unique to just Indigenous people, but because we are such a tight, close-knit community, uh, just even across Turtle Island, it's it's very easy to run into somebody that you know or somebody that you know that you know through somebody else. Um, we got friends of friends of friends of friends, cousins everywhere, and aunties. So it's it's almost like unrealistic yeah. to have an expectation. That's a good word. Yeah. It. It's unrealistic for to have an expectation that we are uh, so removed from our own community that we don't know who's applying or we don't know what community they're from or anything about that. And if anything, I, I feel like we have more integrity in the fact that we're just open and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then we understand when we need to remove ourselves from a situation or we have a, a conversation as an advisory to talk about when we should be removing ourselves if, if we feel comfortable. Um but I, I also agree that the idea that you could be removed, so removed when you're choosing something that you're not going to positively or negatively impact whatever you're, it is that you're making a decision on, mm-hmm. uh, that is ridiculous because we all have cognitive bias. Like we're going to be reading names and immediately there's going to be thoughts in our head that are shaped by the society that we lived in. Um, or, you, you know, you're going to have cases where you're not sure if someone's indigenous or not. Mm. And if we were so removed from our own community when we're choosing. That's a good angle. I didn't think about. When we're making these decisions and we don't know who is and isn't indigenous, we end up in situations where there are non-indigenous people taking advantage of, you know, resources meant for indigenous folks. And that happens a lot too, you know, over the years that we've been doing this, it's, we've started to get pretty good at like sniffing them out. 
But at the same time, you know, that it doesn't always work. Right. And so there's, I think a one really good thing about us that can also be bad is that we do have a lot of trust in people, you know, like I trust every single one of the youth advisors to tell me and make the decision whether or not you should be part of a conversation or not. And to not be sneaky about it and not, no one ever has been, but like, that's my expectation of being like, you know, when you're crossing a line, I don't know when you're going to cross a line, but I think you, you do. And I trust that you're going to, act on that appropriately so that we can be as fair as we can to, you know, the many applications that come in. Um, I have a quick story I wanted to share about, um, I think this was before either of you had come into any of your roles, but we were going through a review process. um, And um, years ago, we used to invite um, some of our supporters to come in to be part of those conversations. Like funders? Like funders. People who give the money to yes. give to the young people? Yes. And we had a session um, where we were reviewing all of these applications. And um, year to year, we kind of, we, as you guys have seen it too, we have like themes sometimes. You know, sometimes we'll get like three or four of the same type of applications. So it could be like youth governance or it could be, you know, um, food sovereignty. And so we kind of see some similar similar things happen. And this year in particular was... Um, a a a rite of passage. We had several rite of passage applications. And so, of course, our process is to make sure that everybody goes through and reads all of the applications. They do their their questions so that everyone's on the same page and then we get together and and talk about it. Well, and I, I very explicitly express that, like, it is very important you read each one. You read every single one. Because... Uh, except for, you know, if there's a conflict or whatever, but it's important that they do regardless of whether they're able to support them or not. And so we sh- all show up at, at the the review session and uh, we had probably about three or four rites of passage applications that year. And those two funders that came in who were non-Indigenous, they didn't even read them. They didn't read them. And for every other Indigenous person that was on that review panel, all our youth advisors, those were like, they didn't even have to read them. They were like, yes, of course, like this makes a whole lot of sense. And then that actually turned into, you know, 20 minutes of of teaching these two funders about what it was that that meant and having to like equate what that could have been to another culture. So like being like, this is kind of like a bat mitzvah, a bar mitzvah. And then be, they were like, oh, oh, right. Okay. I get it now. And it was like, but you didn't even stop to read them. You just pass them over. And that's what happens. That's what happens in, in these, these typical, you know, quote unquote, traditional granting programs. You're faced with people who have no idea who you are and what you're doing. And they will just chuck out all your work. And it was, it was that really, makes me so sad. it was really interesting. Well, I mean, those, those grants, they got them, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like they got them, but it was a very clear indication of like, this is the stuff that we're facing. This is why when you create a program for Indigenous youth and you're not getting applications because you're not speaking to them and you're not having people who understand what it's like to be from community, being on the res or off the res or whatever it is. So anyways, that was my little story in terms of like, you know, that review process, it's, it was really interesting time. And then the funders were never invited back. 
<laughs> no, they they were, but it, we kind of evolved from there. Yeah. And that's kind of the other thing about WIPE is that we don't do things the same all the time. We have to change all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the, such an important role for WIPE, though, is just being uh, almost like a conduit for these funds. Um, it, it's putting the decision-making process back into Indigenous hands because of situations exactly like that. Uh, I would honestly rather the funding just go to OIP and then almost like a upside down hourglass or something like that, where it feeds through OIP and then to Indigenous youth because then the direct interactions with large funding organizations are usually not amazing. They're they're usually pretty uh, unfeeling or there's something that is just meant to feel like inaccessible. Like removed. Like removed. Relationships are not the center of the, like their goals, exactly. their outputs. Yeah. They're they're more interested in what looks best on, you know. Photos their, on their website. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Photos on their website. And like, I mean, we heard a story from a youth on our last call where he, he was talking about how his photo was put on a funder's website without his consent. Because they had just assumed that they could do that. Like they, there's a feeling of, um. Almost like not that they own you, but like they're they're entitled to to you, to your image, to your story when they give you funds or resources. Like they're in a way almost buying your story or your project or whatever, so that they could show, look at all the work that we're doing, look at all the good stuff. But they're not actually physically doing any of the work; they're just supporting it through funds. Um, it's the youth who, at the end of the day, are the ones who have to do the heavy lifting again. But OIP takes that and it completely flips that model and says, you know, no, it's, it's, we're going to shift this power dynamic away from funder grantee or grantor grantee and, and turn it into more of like a informal, you know, we're all in this together, all our relations. How can we help you be successful? Uh, you know, we're not expecting to, to use you in the same way. Mm-hmm. And often like people volunteer to like get involved and come back because we have a, a yearly, so once all the young people get their money, they host their events or depending on the time of year, we have a gathering every summer where we actually like spend a day with the young people who got the money. And to, this year it was on Zoom and it's just nice to put faces to the names and we're so excited for their projects in like some closed room somewhere when we talk about it, but to actually see them and get excited and congratulate them and build relationships with them. Like, I think that's so different than likely other granting agencies where they give you the money, but then they expect like a report where like the goal of the gathering is more like let's build relationships and like know each other outside of like what this kind of almost professional capacity is to like build a genuine like relationship and to so that we can watch your journey grow. And, you know, maybe OIP was a stepping stone of and what has happened and it has been happening is like OIP is a stepping stone for youth to say, we've got this five grand and I'm applying for this to because we might have been the first ones to said yes to their project and now they're able to expand and get it bigger and it's just and to have that relationship to watch that growth is like all a part of it and to know we're here to help them even take that step to apply for bigger funding projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like too, like there's like this clinical sanitized aspect to some of the ways that we have to apply and like you get kind of forgotten <laughs> in that process where you're like, okay, all right, you got through, um, but now you have to send in this report, but we actually don't care about you or how you're doing. Like, are you okay? 
because that was a big project. You know, it's like that. And that happens to us, too. Right. Like and we're going to be talking about that in our next episode. But like um, w- while OIP is, is this is providing this really great experience or we hope it's a really great experience, um, we're still playing that game. And so it's 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 important to remember that, like, yeah, we're providing these these funds, but we have to I'm constantly fundraising that I'm constantly doing that to make sure that we're alive. And I'm constantly doing that, uh, applying for the same type of grants with some of my peers. So there's like this like fighting and and not like physical, like for real, but like we're all trying to grasp at the same pots of money. And and then we're utilizing in a different way. All of, Everybody has these great programs that they're doing, but it's just one of those things where it's like, we need to figure out ways of doing this in a better, making better grant makers. You know, like we need to be sharing these ways of how we're doing this and not be afraid of what's going to happen to us in two or three years. Yeah. I think, I think a part of starting that path towards your vision is, is starting to challenge the idea that, uh, like the idea that this power dynamic that exists between funders and the folks who need financial resources uh, is the only way that it could ever be. Like that is, that's to me ridiculous that we can't move beyond the idea that uh, there's a scarcity. There isn't financial scarcity, especially in, you know, a colony like Canada. We have plenty to go around. Uh, nobody should be without clean drinking water. <laughs> in, in a country like this, I'm, uh, I'm doing air quotes around country. I think that kind of crabs in the bucket mentality exists at our detriment and it exists because it is, it's something that works for the current system. And it's, uh, it's something that's been with indigenous people, you know, since we've been put on reserves, basically the idea that there is scarcity that we need to be fighting over because the powers that be are putting little bits of crumbs into our fish tank. The beauty all, of capitalism. Yeah, we're all fighting over the same little pot of, you know, food or money or resources. But there's like so much more. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that we as a society should just be like wasteful and spending and like the, you know, we're like Romans or something. But uh, the idea that there isn't enough to go around is a complete lie that's used to to make us, you know, not subservient, but to make us feel as if we're being or having a favor done for us. Mm. Or like the idea that we should be so lucky. And just accept the as it is. Yeah. Like, yeah, we should be grateful. because, And that's the other thing that just made me think of in terms of the review process is like uh, we're always made to feel like Theo will always be like, just keep saying yeah. Like whatever you want, say yes to the projects that you want. And if we need more money, like I'll go find it. <laughs> like we try to say yes, even if we like know we have a certain capacity but it's like that's even a part of her like taking care of us as youth advisors too is being like don't feel bad like if you want to if this is a great project for you guys like just just say yes or yes with like xyz like different um like parameters or might have to change a few things but like and it just makes us feel good that we're not having to like say no to great projects because there's not enough money but that's like also which just is almost frustrating to think about too how there is so much money that we have to say no to like some a couple of projects because we just like can't go past a certain cap too and you're like really having to make some tough decisions when it's like we're 
looking for breadcrumbs out there from these like mega like rich people. Yeah. These are like corporations, organizations that just within their operations alone. That are probably like forest industry, like the indigenous resources that were here that built their empire. And yet we have to say no to this five grand or something because we didn't get enough money. I mean, a lot of the family foundations, they got their wealth from directly from this land that we're living on. This is indigenous land. And you, know, you have families that built up Canada. In quotes again. In quotes built, again. Yeah. <laughs> built Canada. Uh, and they, they generated a lot of wealth off of that. And their way of giving back is to, to give us crumbs. Uh, and that is enough to get a tax receipt. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do we start to challenge that idea that redistribution of wealth en masse is something that absolutely needs to happen, especially for Indigenous people? Uh, the idea that you have Indigenous youth who are writing $5,000 grants so that they can do a community garden so that their community can have access to vegetables is ridiculous to me. I just felt like God chills my whole body as you said that because it is. It's like, that's like food sovereignty. It's food security. Like, imagine we could have, like, young people applying for housing money or, like, you know, like, there's so much that could come from this. Like, housing insecurity, boil water advisories. We had youth that, like, you know, building a basketball court or a hockey um, rink. Like, these are just, like, recreational things that, like, are too big for the scope of OIP. But these are the dreams of the young people that, like, we have to say no to because it's just out of the scope of what we could even help them do which is ridiculous <laughs> well what's crazy is that the, the dream is clean drinking water yeah like, the, the dream is a gym yeah <laughs> like if anything these young people shouldn't have to worry about that that's just stuff that should be a given um what they should be focused on is like what is their actual dreams like are they artists are they trading tech are they trying to just you know are, is their dream of some radical idea of just chilling like <laughs> the idea that Self-care in, in itself is something that can be a dream mm-hmm. or this idea of, you know, a state of healing or accomplishing something in your community. Uh, instead, we have to think about like, you know, garbage disposal <laughs> or you know, making sure that our languages are even considered, you know, worthy enough to be passed on or something like that. Um it's it's ridiculous, and the the responsibility is squarely put onto Indigenous youth shoulders uh, along the entire way. And that's not to say that you know adults aren't doing anything or like grown people. I'm looking at Thea, but <laughs> Thea, Thea's doing lots. Yeah. I was like, wait, did you just call me an adult? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I think we're just at a place now where young people are so aware. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have information at our fingertips constantly and we're constantly in communication with one another. That stuff isn't slipping by anymore like it would have before. Or people aren't being challenged about their ideas like they wouldn't have been before. Like the indigenous community itself has problematic ideas that we have to work out of our culture. And those are ideas that come from colonization for sure. Um, And young people are able to recognize that, see that, and then say, you know, I need to call a person in or I need to talk with somebody in my community who's a leader because what they're saying I don't agree with or what they're saying is inappropriate. That's not something that would have been happening like it is now before. Like when my grandpa was my age, he was coming out of residential schools. He, he wasn't given the privilege of being able to have conversations like this because he was dealing with the idea that he just had his cultures and language stripped from him. Um, 
I, I, as a young person right now, I have the privilege of being able to say, no, I have the privilege of being able to say, I don't want that. Uh, and I don't have to fear for my life. At least I, I don't think I have to fear for my life. I'm also a guy and I look like a white man. So I can get away with a hell of a lot more in this country than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah. So as much. we like come, like as we start to wind, sort of come to the end, like what are some, we've talked about a lot of the important things that OIP has sort of established and the way that we operate as a youth advisorship. And this is not to be given out as like some prescriptive or manualized like approach to doing this work. But I think what people should walk away with like really recognizing is the intentional pursuit of like genuine and authentic relationships and actually not just act asking for the feedback or for people to get involved, but like really being reflective and actionable upon that feedback from the young people, from the youth grantees in our evaluation forms, from the youth advisors. OIP has changed a lot over the years based on different feedback. But I guess like what are some of the important things for you um, with regards to OIP as we kind of start to close? Is there anything that I didn't say that sort of still rings true? Like why is OIP important why should we, why should OIP get more money? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, like OIP is successful because of that adaptability, because of its ability to just evolve to the situation or to the youth or to the project. Uh, and that's just not something that's happening in a lot of different philanthropic, like philanthropic spaces. Um, in fact, I don't think I've ever been in a space where that happens yet, other than OIP. So I think that why it should get more money or why it should even just get more attention is because it's a model that works and it's clear that it's working. We have proof of concept for years now and it's something that could work not just in Ontario, but could work nationally, uh, even internationally. There, There's a lot of spaces where I can see a model that is adaptable, but also as nimble or as light as OIP working effectively in spaces that have just been bogged down by bureaucracy or bogged down by the the bloat of the current sector that exists. And I think OIP's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, do you have any thoughts around that? Do you feel like there's anything that you want to speak to that we haven't spoken about that you want folks to hear? Yeah, I just think that OIP's like non-prescriptive like application process. Like, I don't think that even a when folks are applying or even as an applicant, I felt like I had to like meet some sort of parameters. Like when I'm thinking about reporting, it's like, okay, well, we have to make it sound like at least like 30 people came to our event. And it's, it's like, no, I want to host like a beating group online for like, you know, maybe 12 people. And like, it, there's no dream too small. And if the dream is too big, we work with you to help like make something realistic because if we feel like, oh, the, you're not able to do that with this amount of money. So let's make something like more realistic that still is going to make you feel nourished and good because we're not stepping in to like tell you how to do your project, but more so we want folks to succeed. And there are a few things that we can see maybe in advance that like might not come to fruition where we've had to be like, let's take a piece of this and then you learn from it and then you apply next year with like the ex- the other piece and you build off of that. And I just think that the what's so integral to OIP that is just this ongoing relationship with the grantees and helping them mold and and just, we just want them to succeed so bad. And if that means saying no the first time, but we want you to come back. Or if it means saying yes, but you only get a piece this year because we just think that you can do a little bit more work around your budget or 
you know, it takes a, this, this, this and that to plan this event. It's not just no, because the scope is too big. It's yes, but, or yes, and. Mm-hmm. And I just think that the centering relationships is just, it's just so integral to OIP that I think that a lot of these granting companies could, companies, they might as well be companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a reason that word slipped out. <laughs> like, <laughs> could learn from. It's not a transaction and we're not expecting young people to give us back as much as we've given them in terms of value or like um, a- accountability, like this relationship, this trust, this like, it's all, it's all built into it. And I think that's why we have repeated applicants. I think that that piece about honesty is super important too. Like the idea that we're just honestly, radically honest with, with everybody that we interact with in this space, or we try to be as honest as we can be. Um, Cause that's not something that I, I feel outside of weight. Uh, generally, if you're being declined for a grant or something, you're not given explicit reasons why you're being declined. It's usually just like, you've been declined. Goodbye. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have too many applicants. We can't get back to all of you. So sometimes they won't even let you know if you've been declined. Uh, whereas with OIP, it's just, how, how can we be truthful in the way that we're saying what we need to say? And how can we do it in a way that's kind, but also in a way that isn't, an excuse or isn't just a, a way to move along the conversation or move a youth out of the room or something like that. So I, I really appreciate that as a young person because it's not just, it, it's being treated like another person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> because we do we? <laughs> have faces to our names. We are front facing as advisors, as a group. Like we want to get to know you and we don't want to get to know you and just like, be rude or be like so just like removed from that we're putting our faces out there who we are we're making relationships because we want to be genuine and we this work feels better that way when it's just well and recruitment in that way of like sharing when the applications are open like you guys are sharing that on your personal social medias Mm -hmm. and like to me that makes a really big difference because even when we started this it was like we were just calling on all of our cousins and our aunties and all of them to share it and say, Hey, do you, do you want to see this opportunity? And when you see somebody that they know saying, Hey, this is cool. Then it starts to, to, to build. And we were like, Hey, like, actually my cousin told me that they got a grant from this and it was really easy. And they were able to do X in their community. And it was really cool. You should check it out because I know you're trying to create an online beating course or mm-hmm. you're trying to create a running program or you want to build a community uh, garden. So that personal relationship, I think is, is, yeah, it's absolutely key. But when we started this, like it wasn't intentional, right? It was mm-hmm. just like, let's just do this how it feels good. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when people are like cool around you. You actually <laughs> want to be in a relationship with them. It's like a natural <laughs> development or progression as you're like developing relationships with like cool people that people have brought in because they trust them and they know you're not like going to get betrayed or something. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you apply to other grants, they're not asking you how you feel. They don't care. Yeah. They don't care if you're okay or not okay. You know, like that's, that's a big, a big difference. And then that's how you build trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the trust and the community kind of champions that you've created, that you've surrounded WIPE with, uh, it's huge. Like the idea that you have young people voluntarily 
telling other young people something is just, that's what corporations pay a lot of money for. But you have, or not you specifically, but OIP has created an environment where we want to be involved. Like we want to be at the table. We want to be a youth advisor or we want to be a grantee or we want to be on a podcast with you. And that is entirely something that I haven't experienced before. Like there's only a few other places where I I would feel like this. And one of them is the Enegby Youth Agency where it's indigenous youth again who are doing the the leading. Uh, Because generally the same kind of trust, the same honesty, the same communication isn't afforded to people that are, you know, my age or younger. We need OIP. The sector needs OIP. And they need OIP more than OIP. I guess it has to be reciprocal because OIP needs money from somewhere. But the teachings of OIP, the sector should embrace with open arms. Yeah. Well, hopefully, and that's the whole point of this podcast is just like, I don't think this is going to be the only conversation we're having. You know, this might not be the only time you're going to come in and and be part of this. Sorry, and I Sam. Hope that <laughs> we're going to lean in on your wisdom a few more times. You know, but but that's the whole point of this. You know, like you represent so many different roles, and you have so much experience to share, and that's what we want to do with this. You know, like yes, it's it's Oit putting on this podcast, but we're going to dive way deeper into a lot of different topics, and and try to share those experiences with the world. In the hopes that like, I don't know, maybe somebody who is listening is trying to create a program will hear it and be like, maybe I shouldn't do that, you know, yeah. or maybe I should do this and maybe I can work differently. And that's sort of like the idea behind this is just let's spotlight these voices. Let's make sure that they have an opportunity to be on an indigenous led podcast. Mm-hmm. You're not going to some bros podcast, you know, <laughs> sponsored by Red Bull. It's sponsored by Red <laughs> <Our> Bull. Monster. <laughs> where you can be featured for one episode. Yeah. And then no one cares again. They're like, cool, we got an indigenous person. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is, we get to call the shots with this. Yeah. It's nobody else. And we're not on anyone else's timeline. And I think that's the beauty of some of this. It's like, we're just going to, just going to tell these stories. And if you want to listen, awesome. If you don't, cool. Have a great day. Yeah. I, I think the, the real value of this too will, yeah, be, Indigenous youth hearing this, but also the funders themselves. I mean, if there's any funders listening to this right now, like pay attention, please. Um, Because it's getting to a time now where if you're not meeting us where we're at or where we want to be, then we're just not going to interact with you as young people. Like we're we're beyond this idea that we should be uncomfortable in in these systems that we didn't even create. Yeah. Well, the systems weren't created for you to be in it. (laughs) Exactly. Or to be comfortable at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I had something else I was going to say, and I don't remember. Yeah, or the to be in these systems, like we have to do it on their terms. Yeah. Not yeah. anymore. Uh-uh. We've got our own table. Yeah. You can come if you want to. There's space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess with that, I know we've shared a lot. Listen as much. Go back. Go back and listen again. <laughs> yeah. Repeat. <laughs> but uh, thank you, everybody, for showing up to episode three. We hope that uh, you continue to engage with us. And thank you so much, Sam, for being here today. I'm sure this is not the last time we will hear your voice and all of your thoughtful reflections. Well, and thank you, too, Shannon, for sharing your experience. And yeah, we got a lot of overlap with people. And so I think that it will be something we'll touch on, too, as we move forward. And actually, the one thing I did want to say before we close this out is that we're going to... Um, if there's questions that folks have um, after they hear any of these podcasts, um, submit them. We, we have an Instagram. Um, we'll have a few different uh, avenues in terms of um, sending in questions. And so if you have questions, please send them in. 
Um, and we're going to do our best each episode that we go through to to answer those and take take some time to kind of um, uh, explore some of the things that our listeners are, are interested in. So that's, uh, yeah, uh, another reason to stay tuned. All right. And on three, we're going to do our group miigwech. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, miigwech. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.